Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 232, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, there's a generation of kids that will likely never know cursive reading or writing. But is that okay? Stay with us. podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, Is It Fair to Grade Classroom Participation? Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment weighs in. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. Can you believe the month of October is almost gone already? I know. We're about to wrap up, and um, that's funny you bring up just time and months and everything. So typically, I think most people, most educators, um, or at least we kind of think that October is kind of like one of the tougher times of the year. Um, would you agree with that or no? It is. It's always the time where you're just about get you're getting tired. You've got to push through, you know, the Thanksgiving break seems like it's forever away. Um, it's a tough time for, for, I mean, in my experience, it's a tough time for educators. And I think that's kind of like when, if you just ask somebody, Hey, when's a tough time? They'd say October, but Ed Week, um, who also thought it was October, they did a large poll with their audience of educators, and they were like, all right, what's the toughest time of year? And um, do you know what the highest result was, the toughest season? Well, if it's not October with fall, then maybe it's around April. Yep. It was uh, like the March-April area, really kind Mm -hmm. of of more March, um, and it was considered like 40% of their vote was picking then uh, then outside of uh, say winter or fall and um any guesses as to why before i kind of give you some of what the responses well, are after we have spring break it's a long stretch to the end <laughs> that's pretty much it it was it was mostly and i think a lot of these respondents maybe were from the northeast where they don't have a spring break in march ours is typically in march but i think up north because of climate it's maybe mm-hmm. more likely to be in april and mm-hmm. just like march no days off the possibility of snow days severely decreases you know and everyone's ready for spring break that was one of the the major responses another one was the fact that uh as soon as they were pointing more towards April and they say once state testing is over, they feel like the kids think the year is over and everybody just kind of gets crazy once state testing. I agree with that, which is one reason why we're very strategic about our state testing calendar and how we stretch out those days. The window opens, let's say this year, it opens somewhere around April 3rd. Well, the last day of school is not until the 22nd. So there's no way in the world we're going to kick off on the 3rd and be finished by the 10th. No way. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, no, that's true. Because then you got 12 days of just craziness, probably. 12 days, two months. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You said the la- the last day is the 22nd? Like May. Like oh, May 22nd. 22nd. I thought you were saying. Right. I, I was going to question you on that because I knew you guys were on this new calendar. But then I was like, well, maybe they're getting out April 22nd this year. No, sir. All right. It's yeah. It's like so, May 22nd. And so, so like a month and a half, basically. Yeah. My yeah. goodness. Yeah, but it'll feel like six months. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was a little interesting uh, nugget. Another thing I saw, um, this was an article out of The Atlantic, and it, I guess this never really occurred to me. Maybe there was a discussion about this in Mississippi a little while ago, but it was about the fact that Gen Zers never learned to read cursive. Do you, do you re- ever still write in cursive? Um, rarely, to be honest, my signature is definitely in cursive, but I actually print everything. I have an interesting story. Why though? I'm left-handed and in middle school, I seem to get a lot of feedback from my teachers that the content of my papers or my responses were of quality, but I probably would have received higher markings if they could read my writing. Hmm. So the summer before ninth grade, I was so fed up with it. The summer before my ninth grade, I just played around with writing the whole summer and retaught myself how to write in clear print so that I could get higher scores on my responses and on my essays. And it worked. And but so much so that I no longer write in cursive. And that's just hilarious when we think about how cursive was taking out of schools. It kind of made its way back for the state of Mississippi, but they can't. If the article is saying they can't read cursive, it's because they don't see it. Our children see printed text more than anything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because they're constantly on a device. And so this article um, features Drew Gilfin uh, Faust, who is a Harvard University historian and former president. And he describes teaching an undergraduate seminar and being surprised that two-thirds of the students couldn't read a handwritten 19th century manuscript. And he was kind of like, oh, yeah. And so he starts having a discussion with his students and the students start almost teaching him of like how we got here. And he's kind of come to the conclusion that the turning point was probably 2010 when cursive was not included in Common Core ELA standards. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you said they, they claim that 20 states have passed legislation requiring cursive. Mm-hmm. So I guess Mississippi's one of those. One of those. But you know what's interesting? When I think back to when I was in the sixth or seventh grade, one of the options I had as an elective, of course, was art. But one of the units we had in art was understanding the art of calligraphy. We each had to purchase a kit and we literally learned how to write, you know, with calligraphy. And if you go back and you look at, say, the Declaration of Independence or, you know, material from the era that you're referring to in in, in that article, that cursive handwriting was more like calligraphy. Mm -hmm. It was fancy. It was very beautiful. It had an extremely personal touch. But over time, we got away from that um, when we switched to having ink pens. (laughs) And, you know, nobody's ever talking about that, right? Right. And and I'm wondering, maybe you can tell me from your experience, I don't know, I have a a 17-year-old and a 22-year-old, if I ask them to sign their signature, I don't know if they're signing it in print or in cursive even, even they're just their signature. See, I will say that my son will sign in cursive, but we had conversations about what a signature meant and how important it was to protect it. And so I had him practice his signature many years ago, <laughs> and he probably didn't understand the purpose of that until um, actually National Signing Day. He had a ton of papers to sign and to complete to um, get through the clearinghouse and all of those things. And I guess it came in handy. So in your opinion, 
are are we in a bad spot or is this just inevitable the fact that cursive is about to die pretty much um, I don't think it's going to die. And I don't think we're in a bad spot. I just think it is what it is. You know, there's more important things to worry about, I guess, when I think about um, what we need to be exposing our children to and what they're missing out on. And this is completely off topic. But another thing that you and I can probably relate to um, are some of the courses that we took either in middle school or high school. I took home egg, I took wood shop, and I wasn't I wasn't forced to select a, a, a graduation track through career and technical education to be able to take a woodshop class or mm-hmm. a machinery class. We just had all of those options. Is that not an op- You don't have woodshop in high schools around here We, anymore, we do, but they all fall under the career and technical course pathways. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. It's okay. not just a random elective. Yeah, no, I randomly it. took woodshop and I enjoyed it. I, I took too. it. I took I, two of them, I think. Me too. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, a valid point. I guess with the, the cursive thing, I don't know. I, I, I think it, even if 20 states are, are making it mandatory, right? That still means that you're about to have a large mm-hmm. group of the workforce. Cause if we're talking starting in 2010, these kids are now 21 and but, they can't write in cursive. You're, you're referencing the workforce, but in the workforce, you're seeing everything is digital. I mean, right. let's just keep it basic and go to McDonald's. They're not writing anything. I think if you actually go dive into this article, they, they point out that like the decline of cur- cursive is inevitable because essentially writing is a technology. This is going to be an old technology. And when you kind of look at it that way, I mean, it's just going to be dated in some sense. I don't know. So uh, let's let me rephrase this. You were just saying that, you know, uh, we need to focus on other things. Do you think that states shouldn't be forcing cursive on our students? Um, I Well, we're saying that the states are forcing it, but one thing you need to know is that your, your, your parents and your communities were upset about cursive being taken out of the school. So they helped to lead that charge and having that conversation. And I think the legislators just supported that. I don't Mm -hmm. think that it was, you know, the other way around. Um, But also, I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of things that we should be teaching at home and not necessarily in school if it's the things that we know we want our children to be exposed to. See, I'm going to say, I'll say it this way. Um, if my seven-year-old never learns to write in cursive, I don't know if that's really a big deal. Like, I, I think I wanted to have her signature maybe in cursive, like yeah. you were talking about, but I don't know. I think I'm I'm okay with that. Those are the things we just had fun doing. Um, I always had whiteboards and just different things that I kept in the backseat of our vehicle. Yeah. So if we're going to the grocery store or if we were traveling a couple of hours, we always played school in the car and I taught him things that I knew he would be taught in school. And it's not because I'm an educator. It's just that's what I found to be fun and a little more purposeful. Um, before he was introduced to video games. Now, let me tell you, once he was introduced to video games, it was hard, but I set a schedule and there were certain days of the week that he couldn't play that game and certain hours um, on weeknights that, you know, it was just not allowed. And so when we got in the car, that was right around when handheld uh, game devices were coming out. We definitely played school for a little while first. And so I was able to push those things in and parents would find that in the summer, and on the holiday vacations, when they're not sent packets or homework to work on, those are great things you can do at the table over cookies and milk. The conclusion of the article says, 
there are dangers in losing cursive. This has come from the author. Students will miss the excitement and inspiration that I have seen them experience as they interact with the physical embodiment of thoughts and ideas voiced by a person long since silenced by death. Handwriting can make the past oh seem goodness. almost alive in the present, and we are losing a connection and thereby disempowering ourselves. So that was kind of Well, that's pretty deep, but it's probably true. And I'll just give you one little example. You know, it's so easy to shoot someone a text and say, hey, thanks for so-and-so and so-and-so. Mm-hmm. I do that. Don't get me wrong. But I still love the power of a handwritten note card. Agreed. Agreed. And people don't yeah. do that anymore. It's no different than, hey, electronic access to books and articles. That's great. But I still spend lots of money at the bookstore. Yeah. And <laughs> here's kind of a sad reality. There is a company now that you like can send your handwriting into and then you can type a letter and then it will send a printed letter that looks like you hand wrote it to, to somebody. And, it's digitized. Right, That's it's, not personal. It's all the tricks. Right, exactly. But um, one of the stories that uh, people often talk about Peyton Manning was he apparently sent a lot of thank you letters and just congratulatory letters to other people in the NFL. And so these other players in the NFL would talk about what a special thing it was to get a letter that was handwritten from Peyton Manning. And um, I think that says a lot to anybody in any industry, really. Yes. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yeah, let's go. Should you or should you not grade class participation? This is a topic our guest in today's Bright Idea segment has spent a lot of time thinking about. Jim Lang is a professor of English at Assumption University, and he's also the author of six education-related books, the most recent of which is Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. He's also a regular contributor to the Chronicle of Higher Education. Jim, welcome to Class Dismissed. You bet. Thanks for having me. Put a number on it. How many teachers do you think grade class participation, if you had to guess? In higher education, it's probably 50 to 75%. In higher education, what do you think about it? Do you think it happens in K through 12 much at all? Um, I think it probably happens more in secondary education rather than K through 8 education. So I, I would say in secondary education, it's probably pretty common as well there too. Okay, so you've kind of come out in this recent article that was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education, basically making a plea to stop grading class participation. But but your road to getting there, I guess, has kind of been long and windy because you, for a long time, graded class participation. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I kind of did what was done to me as a student, which was to um, put, you know, about 10% of my grade toward class participation. And then um, at the end of the semester, just kind of like, you know, as I was sort of touting up the grades for the semester and adding up numbers and percentages and then kind of looking at the student and saying, all right, how much did this student speak over the course of the semester? And then, you know, using that grade um, essentially to oftentimes sort of nudge the student's grade up or the final grade up or down, right? So like if, if a student had an 88% or 89%, they had been very active participation participants and I might nudge it up to 90 and give them the A minus, right, instead of the B plus or something like that. So I used it in this very informal, subjective way. Um, but that was the way that I had seen other teachers using it. So that's kind of just what I did. I adopted what I had experienced uh, as a student. And, and you always were kind of using it in a, in a positive way. It was never meant to, like, bring a grade down. Exactly. There was a kind of it was it was possible for students to always help to get help from the, the participation grade. But I wouldn't like punish students for not speaking that much in class. So their grade would just stay what it was rather than getting that nudge up from the participation grade. What made you start to think, all right, I need to reevaluate what I'm doing here? 
it just it didn't feel right. It just I, I just became more and more uneasy with it because as you think about you know grades are really supposed to measure um, something that, that that we can document, like the learning of the students. So how much have they learned? How much have they um, been able to achieve in terms of the goals that we have set for the course? And I just started get less and less comfortable with the idea that grades can just be sort of nudged around in this informal way. But I was equally uncomfortable with the idea that um, that students were essentially getting rewarded for just talking. And that if you sort of just raised your hand and spoke a lot in class, that you were going to get a reward for that. Whereas, you know, there were other students who might be um, engaged just as thoughtfully in the class through the way they took their notes, through the way they participated in group work, through the way they maybe um, engage with the course material outside of the classroom. And those students were not getting that benefit. Um, I, I was a student who didn't love to speak in class. So, you know, I, I just felt increasingly uncomfortable with just rewarding students for raising their hands, basically. And when you say increasingly uncomfortable, I mean, did you find yourself like looking at the grading book and I'm going to make up names and you say you were doing, well, Mike, he he's extroverted and he speaks a lot and, you know, he participates a lot. So I got to give him the bump up from the B to a B plus. But Susie is a very bright student. I know she is, but she doesn't speak a lot. So she doesn't get the bump. Is that kind of like what you, you were doing? Kind of, yes. And like, you know, I would try to work every angle I could to try and give Susie that bump, even though maybe she hadn't spoken as much. Um, but I, yeah, that's kind of what it was. There was this sort of increasing sense that like this, this is not working right. Like it's not, it's not doing what I want it to do. Um, and it doesn't quite seem fair to me either. So um, I just sort of gradually began uh, moving away from that practice. Well, what I like about your article, though, is you're not just a, a problem spotter. You didn't like just point to a problem, you actually offer us solutions because you aren't saying like, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not grade class participation because you still the ultimate goal is right to get kids to participate. Right. Right. So rather than make participation something that um, is optional and that can be graded, um, what I argue instead is that participation should be the norm. That should be the expectation that we have for every student that you are in this class. And as a result, part of the work of doing this class is participating. Now, in order to make that happen, you have to think about participation in a more broad, expansive kind of way. So it doesn't mean just raising your hands and lobbing out a comment to the whole group. Participation can take the form of doing in-class writing exercises, um, actively working with your peers when we're doing group activities. Um, it can take the form of raising your hand and speaking to the class. But even now that so many of us now have access to the technological tools um, that we might not have been using before the pandemic, it could also take the form of posting to the group uh, discussion board after class, right? So that there's just lots and lots of ways for students to participate. But the expectation is everybody does these things. Um, and so, you know, that's what I say to students at the beginning of the semester now. I'm not going to grade participation because you're all going to participate every day and every week in the class. Now, you're going to do that in different ways. Um, and so, you know, if you love to speak in class and raise your hand, that's fine. You can do that. But there are other ways for you to participate. The other thing I do argue in terms of speaking in terms of the whole class, speaking in front of the whole class, I know some students are uncomfortable with that. And I know some instructors are uncomfortable with the idea that we should, you know, just call on students who don't have their hands raised. But here, too, I think that, um, you know, it's important for us to communicate that, um, you know, participation is a value. It's so important that we have to sometimes invite students in who maybe at that moment don't you know, are, are not raising their hand or are not actively signaling that they want to participate. 
So I call this invitational participation, by which I mean, I'm not like, you know, challenging you to a duel when I say, do you want to add some, you know, do you, like when I call on a student, instead I'm saying, look, there's, you know, we're, ha- we're talking about something interesting here. And I'd like to know, do you have anything you want to say? Like, uh, you've been quiet for a while, but I know you're a great student um, and you've thought about this. So would you like to add anything at this point? A student can always say no to that, but I want to make sure that every student gets invited to participate on a regular basis. Um, and when I do that, well, then again, there's no reason for me to reward participation because I'm like getting everybody to participate. So, um, so we think about invitational participation as one of the key strategies. Um, and then we think about the other one as being expanding the idea of participation. You can participate in lots of different ways. Let's dive into that invitational um, participation just a minute there. So I want, if I heard you right, when you, you say call on the quiet student who you feel like may have something to contribute, you basically say that to to the student in front of everyone. Like I, you, I can tell that you're thinking, do you want to contribute? But you also offer them an out. Exactly. I do recognize that sometimes students may really be thinking, and there are also, of course, students who may, you know, have trouble participating because they have anxiety or they have, um, you know, they're very introverted. So yes, a student can always say pass, essentially, like, you know, no, I'm, I'm not interested. I don't have anything to say right now. And what I have found over the years of doing this is that oftentimes it takes, a, it takes, it might take several invitations for the student to make that first comment. But when, once they get it the first time and they pass and they know that's okay, that lowers the um, kind of level of, I think, stress and fear about participating in the classroom. Because they know, you know what, I, it, I can say no and that's fine. But eventually, uh, my experience has been that student always eventually will say yes at some point and participate. And then once they do that, then the fear is really gone and they can know, okay, it's fine. I can speak up in here and um, it's no big deal. And so then I, if I have good ideas, I can uh, contribute them to the class. Since you've been paying attention to this and, and been doing this in somewhat of a, at least calculated manner, can, can you share an example of where you were able to kind of get that quiet student uh, without sharing a name to kind of come out of their shell? Um, so in higher education, you know, we get our, we get these accommodation letters, which are, um, you know, described for us that students might have certain accommodations, like taking extra time or whatever. Um, on a taking time and a half on a test. And so in recent years, I've actually had accommodation letters for students who have um, the accommodation essentially has been um, don't call on the student, right? Like the student doesn't want to be able to, doesn't want to have to be forced to contribute in class. Probably they don't tell us why, but it's probably because of anxiety. So typically with those students, I will meet with them outside of class and say, look, here's the way it works. I do offer these invitations. Do you want me to offer you the invitations or not? Uh, and I had a student a couple of years ago who said, sure, it's fine. Um, and the first couple of times, uh, you know, he just said no, or I would actually offer him a yes, no question, basically, or like, you know, um, do you agree with this or not kind of thing? And he would respond to those. And then eventually, at the, by the end of the semester, when I would you know, offer him an invitation, he would speak and contribute just like um, every other student. So, uh, you know, and then I had that, that student actually was also one of my advisees. And I saw over the course of his time, at the, the institution, how much he really grew into himself as a student. And so I think those kinds of strategies can really benefit every student. We have to be compassionate. We have to, of course, respect people's accommodations. Um, but I think that inviting those students, giving them the opportunity to speak, rather than just sort of saying, oh, okay, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll leave you alone. Um, I think actually that's one of the most inclusive things we can do as educators. 
is to make sure that every student is getting the opportunity and the invitation to participate. I know you and I, we've got participation under a microscope right now, so it seems like we're giving it a lot of attention. But how much attention do you give it, say, that first day or that first week of class when you're passing out the syllabus? And and are you making a big deal about how participation is an important part of your class? Are you overt about it? I do because it's, there's, a, there's a section on my syllabus that reads, you know, that explains why participation isn't graded because I know many students have experienced that in their other classes. So I, I, there's a paragraph about it in my syllabus. I review that paragraph. But the more important way that I deal with it on the first day of the semester is everybody participates on the first day of the semester. <laughs> so like if, if that's a value, it's got every, you know, all the sort of essential values of the course should be, um, you know, instituted in the first day, the first week of the semester. So we always will do, I always do an event or some kind of activity on the first day of the semester in which students have to, um, you know, talk to one another and then typically talk to the, say something to the whole room as well. And then I just say, look, this is the way the class works. It's like, you're going to be in here, you're going to be speaking um, to one another and and to all of us. Um, And I want you to just understand that so that um, you recognize that this is what you've essentially signed up for. Now, here in higher education, of course, um, you know, students can choose to take or not take classes. Um, so that one of the ways I presented is, look, if you've signed up for this class, you've essentially signed up to participate. Um, I know that that can be different for K-12 teachers, but in my case, um, that's something that's communicated them to, on the first day. Why is this important to you? Can a student not learn by just being a fly on the wall? Yes, but I, I mean... Yes, but we know that the more ways students engage with the material, the more deeply they learn it, right? So a student who just listens and reads is going to have one kind of experience, but we know that a student who listens, reads, and then writes about it is going to have an even more deeper engagement and better learning, and a student who listens, reads, writes, and speaks is going to have an even more engagement. And, you know, if they drew something about it, it would get even deeper, right? So the more ways they engage with the material, the more deeply they're going to learn. But the other thing that I think is really important here is that uh, thing I mentioned earlier about inclusivity. Um, you know, that when we when we just kind of make participation like something that people can choose, or we kind of leave it up to the students to decide whether or not they're going to participate, you're going to have students who dominate the conversation. You're going to have confident students who's you know coming from from good you know like backgrounds who who have been taught you know that you're 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 capable of success here. Um, speak up, we want to hear you, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're going to have other students who are coming from backgrounds um, who maybe have where education has not been valued, where um, they haven't had the same positive experiences in their lives, um, and they may choose to kind of uh, react in the classroom to just kind of staying in their shells and uh, and not really uh, wanting to get out because of, uh, for whatever reason, so one of the best things I can do as an educator is, is draw those students in and help them recognize, no, you have something important to contribute here. Every student in this room has a unique experience, a unique perspective that nobody else has. And that you could say the one thing that helps us all understand this topic more clearly. So the best thing I can do as an educator in terms of inclusivity is to make sure that every student's voice gets heard in the room and that each of those students, when their voice gets heard, recognizes I have something unique to offer here. That doesn't happen if I just say, you know, okay, so, you know, who, who raise your hand, who's got something to say, right? I want to make sure every student um, knows they matter in the classroom. Do you have any strategies for the kids that are over participating? Do you try to discourage that at all or do you just let it flow? 
I actually love one strategy that a colleague of mine came up with, um, which is she, as students, uh, when she poses a question and she makes this clear from the beginning of the semester, she does not call on anyone until I can't remember what the number is, five or 10 students have raised their hand. So in other words, you know, she'll sit there for 30 seconds or a minute until five hands are up. Now, when do you do that? Of course, um, you're going to get the two or three students who always raise their hands and want to talk, but then eventually you're going to get some other students. And so then you can start to pick and choose uh, which students you want to be able to make sure that you're drawing into the conversation. And of course, if you do invitational participation, I mean, that's the same thing. I, it's very easy for me to say, all right, you know, John, I've already heard from you a few times today. Uh, here, I haven't heard from you yet. Do you want to add something? So, so I think, you know, as a teacher, you kind of learn to manage those things uh, kind of intuitively. But, but those to me are two, two strategies for addressing that problem. Yeah, I like it. Jim Lang, we appreciate you putting a microscope on uh, participation. It's something I think that we we might forget about sometimes uh, in the education field. Uh, again, uh, Jim's latest book is Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. Jim, uh, I definitely want to have you back on the show so we can dive into that book. That is a topic that I feel like we need to discuss. Yeah, it became especially relevant during the pandemic when we were all doing all of our learning through screens and everything. So absolutely, I'll be happy to come back and join you for that. Excellent. Um, if somebody wants to keep up with you, what's a good way to do that? Twitter, Instagram? Yep, Twitter, uh, Lang on Course is my Twitter account. And then uh, I've got a website, jamesmlang.com. I know you've got a pretty big uh, Twitter following there as well. So uh, are you ready for our pop quiz? Yes. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? English literature, obviously. <laughs> what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> um, probably physical, at least in the upper levels, physical, more physical education. We know that uh, physical education is one of the best things you can do for your brain. What does every child deserve? Hmm. Uh, opportunity to succeed. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh that's the biggest challenge. I guess that would be sort of learning to manage the sort of distractions and digital devices and, and use them for learning rather than um, having them interfere with their learning. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, books. <laughs> Which teacher changed your life? Uh, a teacher named Dr. Robert Vaca at the University of Notre Dame. He uh, was a classics teacher and I took several Latin and Greek classes with him. And so, so what do you do? Because that, that's interesting. That's an interesting subject to, to be life-changing. Yeah. He, um, he taught me to just really respect. Uh, he, he Actually, what he really did was he, he respected uh, like the students' opinions. You, you could tell when he asked a question, he really wanted to know what you thought. And that kind of showed me, again, like as I was kind of saying earlier about students, that showed me that like I maybe had something to offer. Um, because he, he, he just was so good about, he would ask a question and, and then he would kind of just stare off th thoughtfully in his face and you could tell he was really listening. He wanted to know what you had to say. And last question, pen or pencil? <laughs> Black felt tip pen. Oh, there you go. Again, you're listening to Jim Lang or James Lang. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Lang on Course or his website, jamesmlang.com. Jim, we appreciate you. Uh, Coming on class dismissed. You bet. Thanks for having me. That 
That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.